Welcome to NTD News Today. I'm Kevin Hogan. Let's take a look at our top stories. Russian missiles hit strategic targets in Ukraine, while the United States criticizes a top Russian official for, quote, loose talk about nuclear escalation. Russia has moved to halt gas exports to Poland and Bulgaria after the two countries refused to pay for supplies in rubles. The Remain in Mexico policy goes before the Supreme Court and find out why Texas is suing the Biden administration over changes in immigration law. New developments on the Chinese regime's cover-up of the virus. Emails show that China rejected the U.S.'s offer of COVID-19 assistance in the early stages of the outbreak. The Russian government today released former U.S. Marine Trevor Reed from jail. He was sent back in exchange for a Russian pilot held in the U.S. Reed was serving a nine-year sentence in Russia. He was charged in 2019 with assaulting two police officers who drove him to a Moscow police station. Reports said he was drunk at the time. Moscow swapped him for a Russian pilot, Konstantin Yaroshenko. He was serving a 20-year sentence in the U.S. after a conviction on drug charges. In 2010, he was arrested in Liberia and extradited to the United States. Russian officials once accused the U.S. of failing to notify its consular service of the man's arrest and extradition. Russia has sought Yaroshenko's return for years while also rejecting U.S. requests for Reed's return. Russian diplomats called the prisoner swap the result of a lengthy negotiation process. In a statement, U.S. President Joe Biden celebrated Reed's freedom. He said he could hear in the voices of his parents how much they missed him. I'm going to try not to cry because he doesn't want me to cry. But obviously, I'm going to cry a little bit and give him big hugs and um, just, you know, just give him hugs. And um, it'll be it's the four of us together again in, in a few years. So it's going to be great. I want to hug him and not let him go. Um, and, you know, I, I was in Russia for 14 months and I probably went to at least 20 different trial hearings where he's standing in a cage. And they, they won't let me touch him, shake his hand or, or anything. So uh, obviously uh, it'll, be, it'll be good to, to finally give my son a hug. Reed's family says his health deteriorated during his time in custody. He had been held in solitary confinement and in protest went on a hunger strike. His parents also said he did not receive proper medical care for tuberculosis. Russia denied the allegations last month, saying Reed had no contact with anyone suffering from tuberculosis. Multiple other Americans remain in Russian custody, including WNBA star Brittany Griner. Russia says it's destroyed an arms depot in Ukraine that housed weapons from the United States and Europe. This after Russia's foreign minister accused NATO of engaging in a proxy war with Russia by supplying weapons to Kyiv. Entity's Jessica Beatty reports. Russia's defense ministry said Wednesday its caliber missiles struck an arms depot in Ukraine's Zaporizhia region, housing weapons from the United States and European countries. NTD is unable to independently confirm the Russian claim. Russian missiles also struck and damaged a strategic bridge in the Odessa region Tuesday, according to Odessa city council. Ukrainian police released this video showing the damage. This bridge is a key connection between the Odessa region south and the rest of Ukraine. Meanwhile, Russian leader Vladimir Putin met with UN Secretary General Antonio Guterres in Moscow Tuesday. 
Putin said Russia and Ukraine are continuing negotiations online and he hopes for positive results. But he warned that they have to figure out territorial issues first. We can't sign security guarantees without deciding upon the territorial issues relating to Crimea, Sevastopol and the Donbass republics. Russia annexed Crimea from Ukraine in 2014. And Moscow recognized the independence of the Donbas People's Republics in February. Earlier Tuesday, the UN chief also met with Russian Foreign Minister Sergei Lavrov. Antonio Guterres said his objective is to save lives and reduce suffering. It is my deep conviction that the sooner we end this war, the better for the people of Ukraine, for the people of the Russian Federation, and those far beyond. Guterres proposed creating a group to bring together Russia, Ukraine and the UN to open safe corridors for civilians. Meanwhile, the U.S. State Department Tuesday criticized Russia's Lavrov for his comments about the potential of a nuclear war. I think loose talk of nuclear weapons, nuclear escalation, is especially irresponsible. It is the height of irresponsibility. All this as U.S. Embassy personnel start traveling to Ukraine again to re-establish the American embassy there. Jessica Beatty, NTD News. Russian energy giant Gazprom stopped supplying gas to Poland and Bulgaria today in a major escalation between Moscow and the West over its invasion of Ukraine. Poland and Bulgaria are the first to have their gas cut off by Europe's main supplier since Russia launched its invasion. But Poland's prime minister said on Tuesday that the country's energy supplies are secure. Our gas storage is 76% full. This is a high level of filling, much higher than in most European countries. Therefore, also in this transitional period before the Baltic gas pipeline is launched, we will be able to draw on our resources, as well as obtain gas from all possible other directions. Russian President Vladimir Putin has demanded that the countries he terms unfriendly pay for gas in rubles and has threatened to cut off gas supplies if the demands are not fully met. Bulgaria, which is almost completely reliant on Russian gas imports, said the proposed new payment scheme was a breach of contract, while Poland, whose gas deal with Russia expires at the end of this year, has repeatedly said it would not comply with the new scheme of gas payments. It has also said it would not extend the contract. Polish Climate Minister Anna Moskwa. We're prepared to be completely cut off from Russian resources, both with regard to coal. The cut was made on our initiative. We introduced an embargo on April 16. We're ready to cut off the gas completely. We're also ready to cut off Russian oil completely. The move to cut off supplies followed sanctions imposed by Warsaw against Russian individuals and companies following what Moscow calls its special military operation in Ukraine to disarm the country and protect it from fascists. Ukraine and the West say this is a false pretext for an unprovoked war to seize territory. The campaign has killed thousands, displaced millions and reduced towns and cities to rubble. Germany is looking for other sources to replace Russian oil. The country is preparing for a change of control at a Russia-owned refinery near its border with Poland. German economy minister Robert Habeck says it accounts for all of Germany's remaining Russian oil imports. We went down from 35% dependency to 12%, and 12 is just Schwedt. Schwedt, I must mention, is being managed by a Russian firm called Rosneft. The Schwedt business model is based on buying Russian oil. 
That is a bone of contention. We need an alternative for Schwet, and we will be working on it in the coming days, and I hope it will only take days. The refinery, known as PCK, sends oil to parts of eastern Germany and to western Poland. Habeck plans to ship part of the supply for PCK through a German Baltic seaport, but he would still need support from Poland to supply the rest. Habeck made the speech after visiting Poland on Tuesday for talks. He said he was nearing an agreement with Poland on finding alternative sources of oil for the refinery. The two sides are now discussing technical details. Habeck did not elaborate on how or when control of PCK would change, but he said Germany could cope with an EU oil ban once he has a solution for PCK. Prior to the war in Ukraine, about one-third of German oil supplies came from Russia. Germany had previously said it could cut off dependence on Russian oil by the end of this year. About $10 million is up for grabs for information on six Russian intelligence officers. The U.S. State Department says the money is an effort to get intel on a criminal conspiracy. It involves one that's, quote, malicious cyber activities affecting U.S. critical infrastructure. Officials say the group was part of a June 2017 conspiracy that sent destructive malware to computers in the U.S. The six officers were indicted by a federal jury in October 2020 on conspiracy and fraud charges. The request for information is part of the State Department's Rewards for Justice program. The Department of Homeland Security has launched a new online portal that allows Americans to support Ukrainian refugees financially. It's one of the main ways the U.S. will fulfill its commitment of receiving the 100,000 Ukrainian refugees fleeing their homeland amid Russia's invasion. And a nonprofit is providing humanitarian aid to the people of Ukraine. We hear from the organization's leader. Joining us today is Katerina Kalandach, who is the leader of Make It Possible Ukraine. Thank you for coming on the show, Katerina. Thank you so much for having me. My pleasure. And right now, there are about 2.8 Ukrainian refugees in Poland. What is your organization doing to help refugees entering Warsaw? Uh, So even though Polish side helping us a lot with Ukrainian refugees, refugees, but also there are some people arriving to Warsaw and they're waiting to be relocated to like different European uh, countries or somewhere in Warsaw and they have to sleep in Warsaw. Like for example, I was helping like central bus station. So what my organization and what I personally did, and now I have like volunteers left in Warsaw, we're helping those people to find a place to sleep when they arrive to Warsaw and they have no place to go and they're waiting to be rearranged. And sometimes they have like a train in the morning. So they have to like sleep at central bus station and then go on another train so we're helping them to find like airbnbs food whatever they need and making sure they have everything they need so they can get to the safe place that's a very important part of life is planning a safe place to sleep and how do you source your funding for this uh so uh we it's so we have different priorities like the most important priority at this moment we are helping volunteers in ukraine who fight along with ukrainian army or ukrainian volunteers who go to like eastern ukraine and like specifically right now in dangerous places so first of all our allocation of funds are going to help to get them protective gears so they don't have to worry about their lives our second priority is refugees in ukraine 
because uh, there's like a lot of, because we feel like European Union is more prepared in some ways than Ukraine to help them out. So second priority is you have refugees in Ukraine and third priority is helping refugees arriving to Warsaw and the Warsaw is number one place where like majority of them are like probably like I don't know probably a million people Ukrainians are in Warsaw right now and probably hundreds of thousand people are going through Warsaw getting to different European places. So I would say we allocate one third of our budget to the, those three causes at this moment. Now in Lviv former British army vehicles are being made into ambulances to help refugees there. What is your organization doing to help refugees in this hub? Yeah, definitely. Uh, so we have established new shelters for um, refugees. So my organization personally, uh, we do two things. First of all, we help to get shelters for refugees, anything they need. So it comes from like food for children, clothes, medication, anything they need. So we go to those shelters every single day, we get a list of things they need and we try to find them. Sometimes we find them in US, sometimes we find them in Europe, so it really depends. Second of all, we help with, uh, we buy groceries and we have a local restaurant here cooking meals for refugees. So we also deliver food to re refugee shelters this moment. Well, Katerina Kalandach and Lviv, thank you so much for sharing this update with us. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me, and God bless Ukraine. Lawyers from Texas and Missouri appeared before the Supreme Court on Tuesday to stop the Biden administration from ending a Trump-era immigration policy. NTD's Jeremy Sandberg reports. Protesters and supporters of the Remain in Mexico policy gathered outside the Supreme Court in Washington, D.C. on Tuesday. Remain in Mexico, formerly known as Migrant Protection Protocols, is an immigration policy that requires some immigrants seeking asylum stay in Mexico while awaiting their hearings. The justices heard arguments from the Biden administration, who was appealing a lower court ruling that reinstates Trump's Remain in Mexico policy. This is after attorneys general from Texas and Missouri sued to maintain the program. We're arguing that the Biden administration, just like the rest of us, have to follow federal law. They either have to detain them or send them back to their country of origin. Biden suspended Trump's policy his first day in office, and Secretary of Homeland Security Alejandro Mayorkas officially ended it in June of 2021. In December, a federal district court reinstated it since the government lacks the capacity to detain all migrants waiting for a hearing. This is a central question about the rule of law and about border security. And the Biden administration's level of lawlessness and how they've handled these issues is staggering. And that's why we've been victorious before at the lower court, why we're back here today. The Biden administration is also being sued over another immigration policy called Title 42. Title 42 is a Trump-era program that allows federal authorities to quickly deport illegal immigrants due to public health concerns over the spread of the CCP virus. On April 1st, President Biden announced his plans to repeal Title 42 in May. Attorney General Ken Paxton of Texas requested an emergency motion to freeze the president's termination order in federal court. By ending the Remain in Mexico policy in Title 42, the Texas Attorney General feels that loopholes are left open in U.S. immigration policy. They're not running from Border Patrol, they're turning themselves in. Because that's, the, that's, the, that's, that's how it works now. Cartels deliver, the Biden administration transports them. Without enough detention facilities in the U.S., Texas and Missouri argue that the administration's only option is to make immigrants wait in Mexico until their hearings. Some Democrats are also opposed to ending current policies without first putting another solution in place. We truly have a crisis on our hands. The border is a crisis, and we've got to address that. We have to secure our borders. Our borders are not secure. They need to be secured.
The decision to end Title 42 is being legally challenged by 22 states and is facing opposition from both Democrat and Republican senators until the president declares an end to the COVID-19 national emergency. A federal judge on Monday put a temporary block on the repeal. Jeremy Sandberg, NTD News. President Joe Biden is reversing another Trump-era policy. This time, it's light bulbs. Tuesday, the Department of Energy finalized new efficiency rules to phase out older, high-energy incandescent light bulbs. Old bulbs that don't meet the new standard will need to be phased out of production within 75 days. The Department of Energy will work with manufacturers to ease the transition. And full enforcement of the rule will go into effect in July 2023, which is also the deadline for retailers to stop selling them. The move is the culmination of a decades-long bipartisan effort to phase out inefficient light bulbs. In 2019, former President Donald Trump halted the new efficiency requirements for economic reasons. Attorney General Merrick Garland says he won't allow any interference into the Justice Department's investigation of President Biden's son, Hunter Biden. NTD's Allison Lee has more. At a committee meeting on Tuesday, Senator Bill Haggerty asked Attorney General Merrick Garland whether he's been briefed on the Justice Department's investigation of Hunter Biden. Garland says the investigation is being run and supervised by the U.S. Attorney for the District of Delaware. He is in charge of that investigation. There will not be interference of any uh, uh, political or improper kind. Haggerty noted that the White House says the president is confident his son did nothing wrong. The senator asked Garland, how can the American people be confident that the Biden administration is conducting a serious investigation? Because we put the investigation in the hands of a Trump appointee from the previous administration, who's the United States attorney for the District of Delaware, uh, and because you have me as the attorney general who is committed to the independence of the Justice Department from any influence from the White House in criminal matters. Hunter Biden first revealed the probe in late 2020, claiming prosecutors were investigating his tax affairs. Reporting by Allison Lee, NTD News. A federal court dismissed all challenges to a provision in Texas's fetal heartbeat abortion ban. The law, signed last year, has faced numerous challenges since its inception, but none have been successful. The Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals sent the challenge back to the lower court on Tuesday, ordering it to dismiss all challenges to the private enforcement provisions. This is referring to the law's novel enforcement method, which allows citizens to sue anyone suspected of assisting with or performing an abortion. The law bans abortion after around six weeks of pregnancy, when the fetal heartbeat can be detected. The Texas governor celebrated the court's decision, saying the law is saving babies every day. Since taking effect, abortions in the state have plummeted. Male or female, those are the only two options to put as the gender for newborns in Oklahoma. Governor Kevin Stitt signed into law a bill on Tuesday banning the option to indicate a non-binary gender on state birth certificates. This makes Oklahoma the first state to ban the non-binary option explicitly via legislation. The summary of the bill states that it requires the biological sex designation on a birth certificate to be either male or female and prohibits a non-binary or any symbol representing a non-binary designation. The bill also bars people from changing their gender on their birth certificates. The Oklahoma State Department of Health reached a settlement in May 2021 in which it agreed to add non-binary as an option on birth certificates. At the time, the governor said it was doing so without permission under Oklahoma law. 
The measure was first proposed in February 2022 and passed in a party-line vote of 75 to 16. The Kansas State Senate on Monday voted to override Governor Laura Kelly's veto on the Fairness in Women's Sports Act. The bill will ban biological male athletes from competing in women's school sports across the state. The legislation requires sports that are sponsored by public educational institutions to ban male students from joining teams or sports designated for females. It does not ban female athletes or girls from participating in men's or boys' sports. The bill was introduced by Republicans in February 2021 and vetoed by Kelly on April 15th. Republican sponsors of the bill say it's needed to create fairness and protect the integrity of female sports and opportunities for girls to gain college athletic scholarships. Last month, 14-year-old Tyree Sampson fell to his death from an amusement park ride in Florida. Now his parents have filed a lawsuit against the ride's owner, manufacturer, and landlord. They are saying the accident could have and should have been prevented. 14-year-old Samson was 6'2 and weighed 380 pounds. The lawsuit claims the defendants failed to warn him about the risk of someone his size going on the ride and didn't provide an appropriate restraint system. The lawsuit also said that while most freefall rides have a shoulder harness and a seatbelt, the Orlando freefall ride had only an over-the-shoulder harness and that adding seatbelts to the ride's 30 seats would have only cost $660. An attorney for the ride's owner, Orlando Slingshot, said the company was continuing to cooperate with state investigators. Check that ground beef in your fridge or freezer. More than 120,000 pounds of ground beef products are being recalled because there are concerns they could be contaminated with E. coli. The beef was carried by brands including Thomas Farms, Nature's Reserve, and Marketside Butcher and manufactured between February 1st and April 8th. If you have any of that beef, throw it out. E. coli can cause serious stomach problems. For details on the recall, you'll find everything you need to know on the USDA's website. You've probably heard the advice, a small dose of aspirin a day can help prevent heart disease and stroke. But a newly released recommendation was published in the Journal of American Medical Association. It's questioning using aspirin for this reason. Here's what's driving the change and what you need to know to keep your heart healthy. Shifting recommendations in aspirin use could affect how you keep your heart healthy. The U.S. Preventive Services Task Force now says the potential harm of daily use could outweigh the benefits for some. If a drug can make the, the blood less likely to clot, it can make the person more likely to bleed, bleeding ulcers uh, or even bleeding in their brain like a stroke. The new guidance is based on a review of 11 clinical trials of low-dose aspirin use. Researchers found that while it did lead to a drop in major cardiovascular events, it did not significantly lower mortality rates. Only when we continue to do these studies can we really understand whether, whether drugs work. Aspirin is a drug that's been around for over a century. According to the recommendations, in most cases, adults 60 and older who have yet to start taking aspirin to prevent heart disease and stroke should not start. For those who have already had a heart attack, they should talk to their uh, physician or a provider about whether it's smart for them to stop. And for the first time, the task force is recommending adults as young as 40 who are at high risk of heart disease also talk to their doctor about starting an aspirin regimen. Coming up, NBA legend Shaquille O'Neal discusses the future of the Los Angeles Lakers and comments on the popular HBO series Winning Time, which depicts the team in the 1980s. 
Hear what he has to say and more in just a minute here on NTD News. The Anaheim City Council was expected to consider a settlement on April 26th regarding the sale of a local baseball stadium. The agreement requires the city to allocate over $123 million for new, affordable housing. California Attorney General Rob Bonta on April 25th urged the Anaheim Council to accept the settlement agreement. In total, the settlement would result in 1,000 new affordable homes, Bonta's office said. The funds would come from the sale of the 150-acre Angel Stadium. The Department of Housing and Community Development alleges that the city violated the Surplus Land Act by not making certain offers on the sale first. The act requires sellers first offer to sell land to developers and set aside at least 80% for housing, with 40% for affordable housing units, among other zoning and public notification requirements. The sale was first approved in 2019. According to Bonta's office, the settlement is part of a wider state effort to address California's housing crisis. NBA legend Shaquille O'Neal has said the Los Angeles Lakers should keep LeBron James, Russell Westbrook, and Anthony Davis together, but adds the team needs to surround them with younger players who can knock down shots. NTD's Andrew Thomas has the details. Injuries sidelined Los Angeles Lakers players LeBron James, Russell Westbrook, and Anthony Davis for stretches of the season and prevented the three players from ever finding a rhythm. The veteran squad ultimately missed the playoffs. Definitely got to get younger. So if you're going to keep LeBron, Russell, and AD, everybody else has to be young. Very young. Mm -hmm. Can't have five and six guys in their upper 30s, you know, because the league is getting younger and getting faster. The Lakers parted ways with Frank Vogel at the end of the season, despite the head coach having led the team to a championship in 2020. O'Neal said Mark Jackson would be his pick to replace Vogel. Mark Jackson helped build Golden State. You know, Steve Kerr took it to the next level, but it was Mark Jackson, you know, made it, made it a very sexy brand to watch, so I'm sure he can do that with LeBron and Russ. O'Neal said he is a fan of the popular HBO show, Winning Time, a series on the rise of the Showtime-era Lakers in the 1980s. Yes, I like it. I don't like how they're depicting my good friend Jerry West, but other than that, I think it's very, very interesting. You know, Jerry was, really? always, yeah, Jerry was always kind and compassionate to me. I've never seen him have those so-called meltdowns. So I think that portrayal of Mr. West is probably false. West? The Lakers' former general manager is depicted in early episodes as having a hot temper. Despite that, O'Neill said he would welcome a second season focused on the Shaq and Kobe Bryant-led Lakers, who won three straight championships starting in 2000. Andrew Thomas, NTD News. Novak Djokovic will be allowed to defend his Wimbledon title this summer. This after tournament organizers announced players who are unvaccinated against COVID can compete at the All England Lawn Tennis Club. The club said because the United Kingdom does not require vaccination to enter it, they will not require it either, but they do encourage it. The tournament takes place in London from June 27th to July 10th. Djokovic was not allowed at the Australian Open in January after having his visa revoked due to his unvaccinated status. 
After his deportation from Australia, he went on to miss the Masters 1000 events at Indian Well and Miami due to the United States COVID-19 entry rules. Earlier this year, he said he was willing to miss out on other tournaments if they required him to be vaccinated. And still to come, a court in Burma sentenced deposed leader Aung San Suu Kyi to five years in prison. She is facing multiple charges. And the World Health Organization says a second Ebola patient has died in the Congo just days after a new outbreak. Stay tuned for more here on NTD News. A Burmese court sentenced Aung San Suu Kyi to five years in jail for corruption today. Her trial was held behind closed doors. Suu Kyi has been charged with at least 18 offenses. They carry combined jail terms of 190 years if convicted of all. The latest case centered on the allegation that Suu Kyi accepted gold and cash payments from her protege turned accuser. He is the former chief minister of Yangon, the largest city in Burma. Her lawyers say she rejects his testimony against her as absurd. Her supporters and legal experts consider her prosecution an unjust move to discredit Suu Kyi. They say it's to legitimize the military's seizure of power in Burma, also known as Myanmar. The Nobel Prize Peace Prize laureate has been held in an undisclosed location since early 2021. That's when she was forced from power by the military in a coup. New emails shed more light on Beijing's cover-up of the pandemic. In the early stages, when the virus first broke out, the emails show that the Chinese regime rejected a U.S. offer of assistance. Those emails were obtained by the Epoch Times. Beijing officially acknowledged that there was an outbreak of an unknown pneumonia disease in 2020. And three days later, the head of the CDC at the time, Robert Redfield, wrote to his Chinese counterpart, George Gao, asking him to get on the phone. He said in that email, I've been trying to reach you and will try again in a few hours. This was the first of several U.S. attempts to offer assistance to China over the next few weeks. Redfield later said that the Chinese regime didn't accept U.S. help. He said he thought it could have made a big difference. The former CDC director said he had extensive discussions with his counterpart in the early days of the pandemic, and Redfield said he had a team of 20 people ready to go to China. According to one report, the Chinese counterpart was the one who personally refused the offers. Gao said there was a lack of authorization. This is one case where China stonewalled the United States when the pandemic first started. On top of that, the communist regime in Beijing was suppressing information about the outbreak inside China. That was at a time when any health data was critical to helping create a better COVID-19 strategy for containment and could have helped minimize the spread of the virus. What's more, Redfield wrote to his counterpart again after he made the call. The subject line for the email was, offer of assistance. It reads, China has tremendous capacity in infectious diseases and outbreak investigation, and in the spirit of cooperation, I would like to offer CDC technical experts in laboratory and epidemiology of respiratory infectious diseases to assist you and China CDC in identification of this unknown and possibly novel pathogen. Two days later, he extended a formal invitation from the Department of Health and Human Services, but it appears China did not respond to any of those emails. Neither Redfield nor his counterpart responded to requests for comment. Shanghai authorities announced just a few dozen deaths within the last week, all caused by COVID-19. 
but locals say this doesn't account for the overall death toll, which is far greater. They say many people are dying from lack of food and medicine or by suicide. Earlier this month, an elderly woman in Shanghai died after jumping from a tall building. She reportedly decided to commit suicide because she couldn't bear her hunger anymore. That's amid the city's ongoing food shortage and as many residents are stuck inside with no way to buy groceries. The woman's husband was seen crying beside her body. In another clip from this month, another Shanghai woman was heard screaming from her window, saying her relative was in a dire situation and needed dialysis treatment. But with her neighborhood under strict orders to stay inside, her relative couldn't get hospital treatment and later passed away at home. In another case, a violinist in the city began suffering from acute pancreas inflammation about a week ago. Hospitals refused to take him in due to lockdown measures. Unable to bear the pain, he ended his life by jumping from a building. These cases represent just a handful of those shared online in recent weeks. A China affairs expert says the death toll from the Chinese Communist Party's zero-tolerance policy toward the virus is far greater than that of the pandemic itself. There must be numerous similar death cases in Shanghai and other cities. It's just that Shanghai is a special city, and these people get more attention, so we can know what happened there. From their stories, we know how much harm the CCP's autocratic zero-case policy has caused to people. Chinese Internet users have put together a digital list of death cases in Shanghai. Most of the information comes from social media posts by the deceased's family, friends or neighbors. But the list didn't last long online, quickly becoming a target for censorship. Another case on the list is that of a Shanghai nurse. She died of an asthma attack, even after the hospital she had worked for refused to treat her. What's more, even an official with China's health commission committed suicide after he couldn't handle the pressure of upholding the country's zero-tolerance virus policy. In still another case, a well-known economist's mother died just outside the door of a hospital. She had been waiting for the results of a COVID-19 test for four hours, needing to test negative before the facility would allow her inside for treatment. A former Shanghai doctor says he believes the list of unofficial deaths only makes up a small portion of the city's true death toll. What about those undisclosed death cases? Because some residents were so panicked that they didn't disclose death cases. The majority of countries outside China are learning to coexist with the virus in low numbers, especially because the Omicron variant has a low fatality rate. China is among the few still insisting on its zero COVID-19 policy, which seeks to completely eliminate the infection by shutting down stores, confining residents to their homes, and repeated mass testing for all citizens. The UN Human Rights Office has set out on a trip to China's Xinjiang region. A spokesman says the five-member team arrived Monday in China's Guangzhou city. There, they will have a three-week quarantine under Chinese regulations. The arrival of the advanced team precedes a scheduled visit by UN Human Rights Chief Michelle Bachelet in May. She will be the first UN High Commissioner for Human Rights to visit China since Louise Arbour in 2005. Her upcoming trip will include a visit to the western region of Xinjiang. Activists say there are about one million Uyghurs in mass detention there. The Human Rights Office did not provide further details on the timing of Bachelet's visit. A senior defense official in Taiwan says the war in Ukraine will inform the island's major military exercises this year. 
We will keep a close watch on the Russia-Ukraine war and the movements of the Chinese Communist military and will carry out exercises. Taking into account the lessons of the Russian-Ukraine war, the military will continue to forge ahead on improving the use of asymmetric warfare, cognitive warfare, information and electronic warfare operations, and use of reserves and the full strength of the nation. The officials said this year's Hanguang exercise will also simulate a Chinese invasion drawing on the experience of the war in Ukraine. It's Taiwan's biggest annual war game. By cognitive warfare, he means how information affects morale, an issue that Taiwan is already facing due to Beijing's actions. Whereas asymmetric warfare is a conflict between countries or groups with different military capabilities and strategies. It often involves the deployment of highly mobile, sometimes low-tech weapons. They are hard to destroy and can deliver precision attacks. The Chinese Communist Party has long claimed Taiwan as its own territory. Since Russia's invasion of Ukraine, the self-governed island has raised its alert level, wary that Beijing may take similar action on the island. The World Health Organization said on Tuesday a second Ebola patient has died in the northwestern Democratic Republic of Congo. It comes just days into a fresh outbreak of the deadly disease. The 25-year-old woman was the sister-in-law of the first case, the WHO unsaid on Twitter. The first patient began showing symptoms on April 5th, but did not seek treatment for more than a week. He died in an Ebola treatment center on April 21st. The time lag has health workers rushing to identify contacts who may have been infected, the WHO said. The organization reported that at least 145 people had come into contact with the confirmed cases and their health is being closely monitored. Genetic testing has shown the infection confirmed last week in a city in the west of the country was a new spillover event, according to the National Institute of Biomedical Research. That means it's a transmission from an infected animal and it's not linked to any previous outbreaks. Congo's equatorial forests are a natural reservoir for the Ebola virus, and the country has seen 13 previous outbreaks of Ebola, including one from 2018 to 2020 that killed nearly 2,300 people. And just ahead, a new type of robot developed in Italy can craft marble sculptures using a special software. But not everyone is convinced that sculptures should be made by robots. Stay tuned for more in just a minute. SpaceX launched four astronauts to the International Space Station for NASA this morning, less than two days after completing a flight chartered by millionaires. The astronauts were due to arrive at the space station Wednesday night, 16 hours after their pre-dawn liftoff from Kennedy Space Center. They will spend five months at the orbiting lab. SpaceX has now launched five crews for NASA and two private trips in just under two years. Elon Musk's company is having an especially busy few weeks. It just finished taking three businessmen to and from the space station as NASA's first private guests. A week after the new crew arrives, the three Americans and German they're replacing will return to Earth in their own SpaceX capsule. Three Russians also live at the space station. Both SpaceX and NASA officials stressed they're taking it one step at a time to ensure safety. The private mission that concluded Monday encountered no major problems, although high winds delayed the splashdown for a week. 
Appearing like something straight out of a sci-fi movie, this Gundam-like robot lifts up special equipment and carries out maintenance work on out-of-reach railway contact lines in Japan. Developed by West Japan Railway Company and two other Japanese companies, the humanoid robot can conduct repair work on overhead wires, which are considered high risk for humans. The prototype of this robot can be controlled by human operators through VR helmets and remote controls. It was designed to lower the risk of electrocution and falling for workers, and the company says it can cut down the labor by humans by a third. The company has been conducting tests since April and expects to put it into full service by early 2024. A company in Italy has developed robots that can craft Marvel sculptures using sophisticated software. Works that once might have taken a sculptor years to complete are finished in just days. Let's take a look. Italian company Robotor has come up with a new type of robot named Bot1, which can precision sculpt works of art. It took the team years to develop the software that controls the robot's movements, but not everyone is convinced that this is the right way forward. One of them is the president of the Cooperative of Sculptors of Carrara in Italy. A sculpture refined by a robot is a dead sculpture, but when refined by an artisan, as far as I'm concerned, it's a live sculpture, a fresh sculpture, a real sculpture. For me, a sculpture cannot be made by a robot because it has to be done by hand. It is something which has to be done together by the artisan and the artist. There has to be this symbiosis. The artist who puts in the art and the inspiration and the marble artisan who produces with his hands the work which the artist has entrusted him to make. The team members behind the robot defend their creation. They say the robot doesn't steal people's jobs because it requires humans to operate. One of the co-founders of the company also says such robots have great potential. This because it helps artisans in their physical efforts, allowing them to specialize in the finishing touches, which are what makes the difference, as well as making them competitive in the market, which is extremely demanding in terms of production and timing and exhibitions. So those who want to remain in the world of production of contemporary art have to equip themselves with the necessary technological instruments. A professor of robotics at Sapienza University of Rome says robots are moving out of the factories and are increasingly used in the art world. He says what is new is the symbiosis between artists and technology from block of marble to finished sculpture. It's not new, but what is new is the integration between uh, uh, the whole of the whole process. So from the design of the object, which can be made uh, on the computer with CAD tools, to the programming of the robot, to the choice of the tools, the proper tools for doing the operation, until the supervisory part, which is still there from artists that completes the job. The team that created the robot plans to enable precision sculpture of not only marble, but also of plastic and wood. They arrange the production of statues commissioned by some of the world's leading artists, and also replicate archaeological pieces or statues which have been damaged or destroyed. Next, a rare violin will soon be up for auction in Paris. It was made in 1736, owned by a famous French violinist. We'll take a look in just a moment right here on NTD News. A rare violin is going up for auction. It was crafted by a famed Italian in 1736. It will be sold in a Paris suburb this June after a short exhibition period. 
NTD's Andrew Thomas has more. This flamed maple-backed violin is one of only approximately 150 made by Italian luthier Giuseppe Guarneri, whose output was relatively limited compared to his contemporary Antonio Stradivari. So to be able to sell one at an auction house like ours is a great source of pride. There are lots of violins, but this one is the equivalent of selling a Rembrandt, a Goya, or even a Leonardo da Vinci painting. Among violins, this one is exceptional. Crafted at the height of Guarneri's career, it was bought by violinist Regis Pasquier more than 20 years ago in a fairy tale encounter between musician and instrument. It's only 351 millimeters tall, this little thing, this little sound box, but it can be played in the biggest halls in the world, and that's what Regis Pasquier was immediately very happy about. He told us that when he was buying it, he chose from a room full of a dozen or so violins, and he chose this one. The violin had an exceptional sound and had filled large concert halls from Carnegie Hall in New York to the Opera Garnier in Paris, with its last concert being just a few months ago. What's unique about this violin is that it's been played even very recently. It belongs to Regis Pasquier, who's a great violinist. It doesn't belong to a collector who's left it in a trunk and allowed it to be played now and then. The violin will be auctioned on June 3rd after a three-day exhibition, and its estimated value is between $4.2 million and $4.7 million. But the instrument could sell for up to $10.5 million. Andrew Thomas, NTD News. You've heard before that fast food is bad for your health. This story shows how poor dietary decision-making increases cancer risk. Plus, we have some tips on how to conquer these bad eating habits once and for all. Here's Gina Marie, who brings us Strong Mind and Body. Junk food, also known as fast food, is not good for you. Yet, why do we insist on eating it? You feel fine, you exercise, so you'll be okay? Well, no actually, and here's why. Recently, a study of almost 500,000 people from 10 different European countries defined results that should alter your eating habits. A new British profiling system called Nutriscore was used. Nearly 50,000 adults from this study were recently diagnosed with cancers. The results were conclusive. Fast foods lead to higher risks of colorectal and stomach cancers. It also leads to cancers of the respiratory tract, mouth, nose, throat, vocal cords, windpipe and esophagus. For women, the risks included liver and breast cancers. For men, lung cancer was greater. The study's conclusion is that if individuals can modify their food choices, they can expect better outcomes. They say one third of cancers are preventable simply by choosing a highly nutritional diet. So why do we resist change that's helpful for us? This is easier than you think. It starts with driving right past the fast food outlets that litter the highway between home and your grocery store. Next, you need to navigate your grocery store carefully. Attractively packaged convenience foods are placed strategically in the central aisles. Knowing this and avoiding those aisles, cancers should not trouble you. If the change is just too hard, don't despair and start small. 
Drink filtered water, that's also a great tip, and walk right past the carbonated sugary drink section, including fruit juices. Try to aim to shop the perimeter of the store. That's where you'll find the most nutritional food like vegetables, fruits, nuts, meat and seafood. Walk right past the deli because processed meats are full of hidden chemicals. This means high cancer risk. Walk right past the bakery aisle because these sugary offerings are full of refined white flowers and additives, so it's a no-no if you want to beat cancer. The good news is, is that your health rests in your decision making. Try to educate yourself on the whole food diet that will allow you to make better choices at the grocery store. A special rescue operation unfolded off the coast of a Southern California. It was to save a stranded baby eagle accidentally kicked out of its nest by its parent. On a cliff on Catalina Island, an adult bald eagle flew away from its nest without noticing that one of its talons caught its child. The eaglet tumbled down the cliff and could be heard chirping helplessly. But fortunately, it landed safely a few feet below the nest. Scientists from the Institute for Wildlife Studies spotted the accident on a webcam. They hiked to the nest to rescue the baby bird. Footage shows a rescuer climbing down the cliff anchored by a safety harness. He placed the bird in a bag and finally brought it back to the nest. Caring rescuers also added wooden sticks to the nest to prevent another accident. While awaiting for the elder eagle to return, the eaglet seemed to pose for a photo being taken by a rescuer as if saying thanks to them. Thank you so much for joining us. We're going to put our email on screen. We'd love to hear from you. Until next time, Kevin Hogan, NTD News, New York City.